Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So uh, I hear I'm the uh, second American in two weeks, and I feel like I should apologize uh, for that on behalf of all Americans. Uh, I, I do work with the Scott, and uh, when he reads scripture or his wife or his daughters, uh, everybody in the congregation wants them to stay up front with that accent, and they're a little bit uh, disappointed when I come up front with my accent. But uh, uh, it's so good to be with you today. Uh, my wife and I count it one of the great privileges of our life to, to be able to be a part small as it is, uh, of this uh, beautiful church. And uh, we're eager every time to come to Leaf and, and to worship with you and, and just to see what Jesus is doing. It's pretty spectacular uh, what the Lord has done in the 11 years that, that we've been able uh, to walk with you. Uh, I'll never forget when I met the Rennies. Uh, I, I think Erskine was, was uh, a baby. We call them strollers. I, I don't know what y'all call them here, uh, but he was in a stroller. And my assistant came in on a Monday. And for me, Mondays are usually meeting days where I'll meet with staff and leadership team and elders, and they're usually pretty booked. Uh, and, and a lot of my meetings with congregants and other pastors are, are later in the week. And uh, my assistant walked in and said, uh, the Rennies are here to meet with you. And I was like, I don't know who the Rennies are. I don't, I don't know if I've ever heard the last name Rennie in my whole life. And I, I, this, is, this happened. Uh, I felt the Holy Spirit lay on my heart that I should meet with the Rennies. And that doesn't happen very often. It's not audible. It didn't happen audibly, but, but I did feel like the Lord just very clearly said, uh, cancel what was happening and, and meet with the Rennies. And so uh, my, my assistant and I talked for a minute, and we organized some things, and, and I walked downstairs and, and saw this lovely family, and we went out to ha have lunch, and we started a fast friendship in that place and in that time, and it's just grown deeper every time. Uh, we had dinner last night, and we laughed, and I ate way too much, and uh, we just pick right up where we left off every time. And uh, I have the, the fortune to be able to, to talk with that whole over uh, FaceTime pretty often and hear about what's going on here. And so I want to start with, with encouraging you, and then we'll get into Ephesians pretty quickly. Um, what's happening through Grace Church Leaf is worthy of your lives. Uh, every second of your life, it, it's worthy for what the Holy Spirit and, and, and the Father and Jesus is, is doing in this place. Eternity hangs in the balance uh, for almost 500,000 people that call Edinburgh home. Uh, Satan hates what's transpiring in this place. Uh, it says in the scriptures that he, he prowls like a lion, and lions don't miss very often. Uh, he's, he's searching out for what's happening in this church, and he wants to bring it down. But uh, through the grace of Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit, 
Uh, you're seeing people uh, profess faith in Jesus and uh, give their lives over to him, and you're growing as a church. And I, I think it's miracle after miracle happening in this place. And so uh, please hear, the Lord is proud of you. Uh, he is saying of Grace Church Leith, well done, uh, good and faithful servant. Um, thank you for the, the work that you're doing. You inspire me and my wife and, and our church. Uh, we pray for you often in Raleigh, North Carolina, and uh, we hear updates, and, and it's just so good to, to hear uh, what's happening. I want to encourage the, the Rennies, and I want to encourage you as you deal with the Rennies as well. Um, these are ferocious people, uh, but they're deeply kind as well. And, and I think that that mixture together um, isn't found very often, at least in the United States, uh, to, to see people that, that are deep and passionate and sweet but also uh, laboring with their lives to, to make much of Jesus. And so that's, that's a good thing that, that, that is happening. Uh, there are some challenges with being a pastor. I know there's challenges uh, with every profession and every job. And so let me tell you a little bit of the difficulty and then ask just one thing, and then we'll jump into Ephesians. There was a man named Peter Drucker. Uh, he was a professor at Harvard University, um, and he tried to look in the 1950s what are some of the harder professions, and, and why might those professions be, be challenging? And he came up with three in the U.S. at least. He said probably the hardest job as president of the United States in the U.S., uh, like being prime minister here in the U.K., is probably it has its challenges. Uh, the second hardest was to lead a large medical facility and to deal with all the different aspects of medicine and, and finances and all of those things. And then to, to the surprise of many people, Peter Drucker said that the third hardest is the pastor of a local church. And that might seem a little bit outrageous to say, uh, but a foundation called the Lilly Foundation did some research. Well, why could he make a statement like that? And he came up with uh, 16 different aspects that a local pastor is responsible for. And they are, are very wide in their expectations for expertise. Um, we do counseling. And some of the counseling is, is dark. We walk through people that have been abused, and we walk through people going through divorce. And then you do uh, fundraising, which isn't like ever the thrilling part of a pastor's job. And then it's leadership development, and then it's volunteer care, and then it's sermon prep. So they're very differing perspectives. And when the Lilly Foundation asked the average uh, person in a church, how many hours should a pastor give each one of these 16 things in a week, uh, they said uh, numbers for each of the 16, and it averaged 116 hours of non-negotiable work for the pastor each week. Now, I don't think uh, Adel's working 116 hours, but, but you get the idea. And so here's my one request for, for you, the church family, as you deal with the Rennies. Uh, Grace Church Leith is like one of their children. It, it just is. Uh, Vintage is like one of our, our children. And uh, we don't mean it to be that way, but I think when, when you help birth it and you labor for it over 20 years or almost 12, it becomes like your child. And so the request is treat each other like the eternal family that you are. Uh, deal with each other in, in covenantal love as the scriptures lead. Uh, you're supposed to be deeply rooted in community, being known and knowing each other and loving each other deeply. And if you'll treat each other that way, the, the Rennies don't need double honor or special attention or anything like that. Uh, they just need y'all to, to love one another as the scriptures uh, say for us to love each other. All right, so that's, that's my opening spiel. Uh, what faces y'all today, and I think what faces Vintage Church is unique in the perspective of what's happened um, over the last maybe several hundred years. In the United States, the, the church is facing two different storms, 
And, and I think that y'all probably, uh, as Scott faced these 50 to 75 years ago, but they're pretty extreme for us right now. Uh, there is a massive exodus from the local church. Uh, it's almost like a very warm, warm front uh, intersecting with a very cold, cold front, and, and it sparks very strong thunderstorms. And if you're in an urban context in the United States right now, uh, the, the, the confluence of those two things is erupting and is, and is kind of violent. And so if you're a doubter or seeker or an atheist agnostic in, in the U.S. and cities, uh, you pretty much hate Christianity and you think Christians are, are to, to fault for a lot of the things that are happening. And then within the church is a deconstruction movement where we're questioning everything that there is about the, the local church. And, and I know that's happening in Scotland as well. Uh, for example, the Southern Baptist Convention just this past week, the largest denomination in the United States, uh, gave out a 288-page paper about abuses in the Southern Baptist churches. And, and the average follower of Christ wants to follow Jesus but is leaving very quickly. And uh, to make things a little bit more complex, this is happening in Western culture, all over Europe, all over the United States. Uh, we're working with a group called Mosaics, and they help churches become culturally intelligent so we can uh, deal with all of the things that are happening in our country and cross cultures on a racial level and a national level. And Mosaic, as they look across Western culture, says culture has changed more in the last four years than the 40 years before that. So what's happening in Edinburgh right now, just, just put some numbers to that. That means 2022 is less similar to 2018 than 2017 was with 1977. That, that's wild. That's before the internet. That's before so much mass communication. Uh, that's before you know, so many of the things that have uh, influenced up over those 40 years. That's how fast culture is changing. And if things are changing that fast, uh, imagine some of the pressures that are being put on the local church, on, on this church. Uh, one leader in the United States, his name is Francis George, he says this. He said this just a few years ago. He said, I expect to die in bed. My successor will die in prison, and his successor will die a martyr in the public square. His successor will pick up the shards of a ruined society and slowly help rebuild civilization as the church has done so often in human history. Um, so for us, for you, to love and engage Leith and Edinburgh is going to require a lot from you. You're going to have to be winsome in the words that you speak as you articulate the gospel. Uh, you're going to have to love those who are seeking vengeance against you. Uh, you're going to have to be devoted to things like joy and mercy and peace as storms rage around you. We have to be devoted to, to what we're for and not what we are against. In the United States, and I, I think this is probably similar in Scotland, really wherever there's the church, the church can be so um, tight in their grip on dogma, which is really important. Like we, we have to be theologically driven, but we can be so tightly gripping those things that we're known more for what we are against than what we're for. And that can't be the case anymore. Uh, culture can't look at us and say, well, you hate this about us, and, and you disapprove about this, and, and you frown on these things. There's no joy in that, and there's no mercy in that, and there's no gospel in that. And so what we need more than anything else is to come to a perspective where we plant churches like this church that believe the gospel, that live the gospel, and that have the power of the Holy Spirit through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to change the city uh, that, that we live in. And so I want to go through Ephesians, and I promise I'll end on time. 
I want to look at Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, because I think that forms for us uh, what the church is supposed to believe, uh, how rescue or salvation happens, and what the mission of the church is. And so uh, when we plant churches, we do our core groups in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. Ephesians 1 is deep theology. Uh, Ephesians 2 is salvation, and Ephesians 3 is the work of the church. And so uh, let's start in Ephesians 1, 4. Uh, I'll read off the screen. It is, again, on page 876. Um, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that he should be holy and blameless before him in love. So let's play out this um, God picking us, this predestination reality, not on an argumentative level. Uh, we always go with that. Well, what does it mean on the negative? But, but let's try to play it out a little bit, what it means uh, on the positive. And so um, I'm going to make up a scenario here, but I think it rightly articulates God's perspective for you. Uh, in the United States in the spring, we get very severe storms. And some of these storms hit Kentucky, a state near North Carolina, uh, a couple of months ago. And it devastated entire cities as tornadoes touched down. Uh, you could look at a city and look at the, the satellite side-by-side maps, and, and there was great city structures and then just nothing. And families were separated in these tornadoes. And, and imagine if this scenario had played out, uh, that after a couple of hours, a, a 12-year-old boy, and I, and I use that as an example because I have a 12-year-old boy. A 12-year-old boy is covered in rubble, uh, digs himself out, and then looks at his obliterated city, and there's just nothing left. He can't find his mom and he can't find his dad. Uh, what would he do? Uh, well, he would start searching. Uh, and imagine this. This is scenario, scenario A, scenario B. What if he dug himself out and he started searching for his family? And after a couple of days, he sees in a distance his mom and a dad over in a corner trying to find the remaining of their son. And he ran over to his mom and his dad and with joy in his heart, he said, I finally found you. And the dad responds in just kind of a callous, cold voice. Well, I'm surprised that you made it. I'm surprised that you're still alive. Uh, We didn't really go searching for you. Our our hearts really weren't bound towards you, even though you're our child. But since you found us, I guess you can stay, start picking up some stuff. That's scenario A. Or scenario B, which I think is Ephesians 1, which is the biblical perspective. Uh, When the, the father and the mother were taken from the child, the father and the mother, according to Luke 15 at least, uh, searched endlessly for this lost child, digging through rubble, looking everywhere, risking their own safety and their own lives. And when they found the child standing over just a few feet, they ran over. And before the child even knew that the father was there, the father had scooped the child up, pulled the boy close, and kissed his face, embracing him and saying, my child who is lost is found. My child I thought was dead has come back to me. That's Ephesians 1, that you were, you were pre-chosen, that you were pre-adored, that you pre-belonged. In fact, that you were, you were pre-loved. Our theology is you didn't find Jesus, Jesus found you. And that radically changes everything about the way that we do life and ministry. Uh, will you, Grace Church Leaf, love in this way? As elders and deacons and leaders, Will you look at Leith and realize your call is to pre-love your, your neighbors and your co-workers as the Father has pre-loved you? And, and even if this is your first time joining this great church, if you don't know Jesus, understand this is saying that God in Jesus Christ hung on a cross 
so that you could be adored by the Father and the Son if you believe and you follow him. And if you are a follower of Christ, your role now becomes to, to make that your mission uh, to pre-love other people. Uh, this is robust theo- theology that God has given us. He goes on and he says this in verse 5. He predestines us for adoption uh, to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Uh, we have some friends, uh, co-workers of mine, Jordan and Jessica, and they're trying to adopt a child. And adoption in the United States, probably like Scotland, is a very difficult thing. Uh, you have to go through months and months of assessment. And the assessment is, well, can be embarrassing. They look at your finances. Uh, they do background checks. Uh, they ask many difficult personal questions. They bring secondary and third uh, organizations to search and find if there's any information. Uh, the average adoption in the United States costs about $30,000. And so they're fundraising and trying to save and doing everything they can to strap the money together. Uh, you have to go to conferences to learn. You have to go to classes to learn. You have to watch stuff online and sign off. It is just a, a really rigorous process. Um, why would anyone go through that? Why would anyone want to adopt? Well, because of love. That's why you adopt. Because of mercy towards the child. Uh, because it's a tangible sign of redemption. And as followers of Jesus, we're supposed to be marked with, with redemption. And so it, it's not a why would we go through this. It's we can't wait to go through this. It, it's a privilege for us to go through this. And to read Ephesians 1, 5, where it says God adopted you, think about what the Father and Son and Holy Spirit had to go through and experience to adopt you. And there's no shame in this. This isn't like God guilting you. This is just the reality. For, for the Father to adopt you, it meant that his Son got off the highest throne of heaven, left glory, and incarnated as a child, as an infant. He couldn't speak. He couldn't eat. He was dependent entirely on a teenage mother and a teenage father. Uh, this man walked through life just like you and I walk through life. Uh, he suffered sometimes. He was hungry. He was dehydrated, and he got headaches because of the dehydration. He laughed. He had great joy. Uh, he even came beside Mary and Martha at the loss of their brother, and, and God, in a beautiful way, in John 11, wept with, with them. Uh, for God to adopt you, um, Jesus willingly walked to Jerusalem when his disciples said, don't have any part of this. If you go to Jerusalem, you will surely die. And Jesus walks to Jerusalem, and he allows himself to be flogged. He could have called down legions of angels to protect him, but he chose not to. He allowed himself to be crucified. And then, beyond hope, on the third day, he was resurrected. Now, can you imagine, if you have power like that, what you could do with that power? You could seek vengeance for those who just flogged you, for those who just crucified you. And I realized I was in the crowd that day as Jesus was crucified. I was one of those who he could have sought vengeance for. And yet God didn't choose to seek vengeance towards you with the power of resurrection. What he chose to do and said was adopt you as son and daughters. He used all of that ability, all of that force, all of that right to adopt you. How good that is that Jesus adopted you. And he didn't do it out of pity. It's not like he looked down and he pitied you. In Ephesians 1.5, he says it was his good pleasure to adopt you. He wanted you. He loved you. Uh, you are that child in Luke 15. You are that, that boy in Kentucky where you are looking for your parents. And before you even knew they were behind you, 
the Father had scooped you up and brought you close, and he had adored you. And so as we follow Jesus as, as believers, uh, we're called to give our lives like Jesus gave his life. We're called to, to suffer and not to be embittered by our suffering that we give financially, that we give of our time, that we um, are, are battled against by culture. Uh, we don't hate the cities that we live in. Quite the opposite, uh, we're praying in love that God would adopt our next-door neighbors and make him and her uh, their children. It's just a beautiful thing that he adopted us. Ephesians 1, 6 goes on and it says this, To the praise of his glorious grace, which with he has blessed us in his beloved. So glorious grace is the power that enables Grace Church Leith to see the transformation of Leith and Edinburgh and Scotland into the ends of the earth. It's not glorious sermons, which I know Scottish people are famous for. You have an unbelievable history of, of great preachers, uh, like Athol Rennie. Uh, it's not that, though. And it's, it's not great leadership, though you need that. And it's not creative systems and structures. And it's not um, robust Bible studies or, or good music or um, hospitality in your homes. These things are all real important. But the, the mechanism that allows you to reach your city is the glorious grace of God. Now, this word glory is a little bit hard to understand at first, but, but just at first. And when we understand it, it, it becomes a very helpful term. Uh, glory is the uh, outward manifestation of something more powerful. So if you think about the sun and the heavens, uh, the sun is the body that has all the power, all, all the source, all the force. And the light coming out of the sun is, is the glory. And so the light of the sun is the glory uh, of the sun. Grace, according to this passage, is the glory of the larger, more powerful force, and that force is Jesus. And so we ask, what's the light of the glory of God? Well, grace is the light of the glory of God. And, and according to Ephesians, God took that grace and lavished it on us. Uh, if you read Ephesians, you'll, you'll get a, a little overwhelmed with how many adjectives Paul uses and I really appreciate that. Uh, Paul's trying to take this infinite mystery, uh, the greatness of God, and make it known to finite human minds and, and, and hearts and souls. And let me tell you, my mind is very finite. And so that, that Paul uses all of these adjectives um, is, is just so helpful for me. Uh, if you want to do a good Bible study, take Ephesians and start circling every adjective that Paul uses for grace and for mercy and for Jesus and for God, you'll just be overwhelmed. He says it's glorious grace lavished on us. And, and that word lavished uh, is just so fun. Uh, we had dinner lavished on us last night at the Bonnie Badger, right? And uh, I ate way too much food. I woke up this morning feeling, feeling overwhelmed. It starts with like course one. And, and when you eat course one, I was full already. I didn't need any more food. And then course two comes. And when course two comes, though I'm full already, uh, th this, this Wagyu beef that was right in front of me, I'm like, I'm going to eat that no matter what it makes me feel like. And, and then more food came out. There was all these sides, and, and the vegetables were, were done to make any, even if, if you hate vegetables, you would have loved these vegetables. That's how, how good they were. And, and then we had drink and, and bread. It just was lavished on us. It was course after course after course. You don't need anything after course one, but it just keeps coming. And that's the grace of God. You don't, you don't need more grace, 
but he just keeps pouring it on you. Or in North Carolina in the summer, it is so hot and humid in North Carolina. When you walk outside, you're immediately wet. That's how, that's how humid it is. And, and you're so gross, the only thing that you can think about is getting into a pool or into the ocean in August because you're, you're already soaking wet, even though you haven't been swimming yet. And so when you jump into the ocean and waves start washing over you, you're soaking wet, but it's just wave after wave after wave. That's the nature of to lavish on something. He's lavished this grace on you. And it's, it's not like indirect grace or indiscriminate grace or like where did this grace come from? According to Ephesians 1, 6, uh, it's grace in the beloved. And, and that's really the essence of Christianity. If you're new to the idea of Christianity to faith, uh, Christianity is just one word. Um, we have some, some doctrine that, that's important that comes after that, and uh, we have living in life together, but it's just one word, Jesus. That's what Christianity is about. It, it's all entirely about the beloved, and the beloved is, is Jesus, the one that, that the Father and the Spirit gave to us. And so uh, we like to use this equation at Vintage Church. Uh, I'm plagiarizing from a lot of people, just stole it blindly from other people. I first uh, heard it in 2010 when I read a book, and the title of the book was Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And I, and I was like, that's so profoundly simple. I, I wish I was that profoundly simple. And then I was listening to the radio, and I heard a sermon from a guy that had preached it 50 years before. And in that sermon, verbatim, it said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. I'm like, he stole that. Like, how can you just steal that for a title of a book? It was 50 years before. And then I was reading a, a sermon from a British guy, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, like 150 years ago. And verbatim, he goes, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And so uh, it just helps me remember what y'all studied just recently, S Solomon. There's nothing new under the sun. And fortunately, the essence of Christianity is not something new. It's not something cool. It's not something trendy. It's just one simple word, Jesus. And if you add anything to Jesus, it just becomes ruinous. Our, our belief is not Jesus plus morals equals everything. That's ruin. And it's not Jesus plus tradition equals everything. Tradition can make it rich and good, but it doesn't add anything to the essence of Christianity. It's just Jesus. Just Jesus. Everything is about the beloved. Okay, so as we turn from Ephesians 1, and we're on track here time-wise, uh, as, as we turn to Ephesians 1, this robust theology, uh, Ephesians 2 becomes, well, how then are, are we saved? Uh, save is a, is a churchy word. Salvation seems to be a very Christian word. Uh, another way to say it is, how could we be rescued? And look what uh, Ephesians 2.1 says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Uh, I think Western culture has come to a place where one of the most important things that we're taught is to protect ourselves and to love ourselves and, and just to take care of ourselves, self-care. And, and certainly there's an important aspect to that. But in so doing, we uh, are becoming unwilling to look at our own faults. Uh, we're almost um, intolerant to anyone that says, maybe there's some brokenness in, in your life or, or my life. And so when we read a verse like Ephesians 2.1, and it says we're dead in our trespasses or we're dead in our sins, we think to ourselves, I, I, don't, I don't need that jargon. I, I don't need that old-time religion. I'm not a sinful person. But that just can't be. That just can't be. I, I know that I'm a sinful person. 
And if you start to look at the world around you, each one of us has parts to do with the larger world. And, and some of the brokenness of the larger world is just impossible to avoid. There's enough calories, for example, that's produced by the world to make every human being obese. And yet almost two billion people are on the brink of starvation. It just can't be that we don't have sinful tendencies in, in our lives. There's um, 46 million human beings that are in sex trafficking, human trafficking, and slavery. We could do something about that if, if we so chose to do. I tell my young church this all the time. Uh, there's direct correlations between uh, our addiction to pornography and, and to human trafficking. And, and we say that, that our, our addiction to pornography doesn't really hurt anybody at all. It's just me and a screen, but, but we see the, the larger reality. Uh, there's enough resources to make sure every human being has a place to live and simple medicines. Uh, and this is how crazy the United States is right now. If you say medicines, they think immediately vaccination, and the church starts to divide a little bit because they think maybe I'm preaching about vaccinations. And I'm just talking about like basic antibiotics so children don't die. And, and we, can, we could stop that if we so chose to do these things. And so I like to tell my sweet church that I love dearly, if, if you just had five minutes with me, you could see sin in my life. And, and I'm not saying this judgmentally, but if you just spent five minutes with somebody else, somebody in this room, you could see the sin in their life. And the scriptures are clear from Genesis 3 forward. Ephesians 2 references this. We're dead in our own sins. Uh, we didn't die physically, but we did die spiritually. Without Jesus, we're, we're dead spiritually. And God's not being mean in this. God didn't kill you spiritually because you sinned. Um, we killed ourselves. We're dead because of our trespasses. And so, so the scriptures say really clearly that, that God is love and that God is light and that God is life and, and God's here. And, and when, you, when you walk away from God, that's what sin is, turning away from God and walking into your own life, you've walked away from light and love and life and when you walk away from life, that is death. We, we walked away from God, and we did die. That's the state of Tyler Jones without Jesus. And the problem is this. Dead things can't make themselves alive again. We can't defibrillate ourselves from, from a heart attack and, and, and wake up from those things. And yet, with two little words, God changes the entire story of your life it's an impossible U-turn, but we see it in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. They say this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which with he loved us. Uh, then he goes on and says, sorry, uh, there's one more part. Yeah, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Just two little words. Um, my wife one time gave me two little words, and, and I'm, I'm thrilled that she agreed to this. Uh, my teenage daughters ribbed me, give me a hard time all the time. They might be the sassiest human beings alive, my 18-year-old and 16-year-old. Uh, they look at me and look at Kimberly, and they, they see how beautiful she is, and then they, they see me. And they, they know how brilliant she is, and they have to deal with me. And they, they're, they're asking Kimberly all the time, did he blackmail you into marrying you? Like, what, what happened here? What was this tragic decision that you made in, in your life? Um, and so I'll, I'll tell you how she, she agreed to this. Um, I was dating her. I, I had fallen in, in love with her. 
And so I, I took her to the top of this mountain in North Carolina. It's called Hanging Rock. A picture's going to pop up. And we were sitting all the way out there on that precipice. And, and, I, and I started, like, waxing and waning romantically about how I, I loved her. And, and you know, then I, I came to this climactic moment, will you marry me? And I just needed two words. That's all I needed. And uh, she was silent for a minute. And I was like, oh, this is not going well for me. You know, like, this is not the, the joyful response I was hoping for. And uh, finally, she started crying. And, and at first, I thought, this is really bad. She's cr- I've made her cry by asking her to marry me. And, and she said, I will. Just two simple words. And uh, they're, they're the second grouping of two simple words that are sweet to me. The s- second sweetest, and I know that sounds like reductionistic, but the sweetest words that you could ever put are, but God. Just those two simple words. God being unwilling to let you be dead any longer. That sin had taken you. And he said, but God. Christianity is not you decided to follow Jesus. That's not Christianity at all. Christianity is not you were good and your goodness got God's attention and made him okay with you saying, well, you found me somehow. I guess you can stay. That's not Christianity at all. Christianity is but God. When life was devastated, when you were under rubble, the rubble of sin, he swooped you up, he picked you up, and he said, I refuse for you to be dead anymore, and I've won you back. I think with that, we have to make sure things like our testimonies or how we talk about finding Jesus should probably change. Um, in America, as I listen to people give their testimony, it's um, you know five minutes of how bad they were before Jesus, a, a little bit of like 12 seconds of Jesus, and then how good they are now. That's kind of the testimonies. And, and it's hard to give a testimony, I, I know. But our, our story should be like um, a little bit about how dead we were and then everything about the robust, lavish love that, that God has just given to us endlessly. But God. Just a few more stops and we'll wrap our time up. This is Ephesians uh, 2, 7 through 9. It, it helps us continue to think about how this transpires so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Is that the end of that verse? Great, thank you so much. Um, have you ever noticed in life how the most profound things are very simple? If you, if you really deeply know something, you don't need four or five paragraphs to speak about it. You, you can just say a few simple words. Um, the best lyrics of any song that you like are, are very short. And when you sing them, there's this explosion in your heart because it did something on a musical level and on, on a lyrical level that you just hadn't really ever heard before. Or as you, as you begin to tell somebody why you love them, uh, you don't give a lot of precursors and you don't give a lot of uh, postscript that, you know, kind of makes it cluttery. You just articulate very straightforward that, y- that you love them. And, and I just am taken aback by the reason for our salvation, the reason that you were rescued in the utter simplicity, but the, the, the deep profundity of it is, but God. But God through faith, through faith in Jesus. It really is a sweet story, and it's why we can go into Leith and Edinburgh and not feel like we're calling people to religion. 
and not feel like we're trying to add a bunch of uh, morality and ethics on, on top of people. Uh, we're calling them to the, the most simplistic thing on planet Earth, but the profundity of the simplicity of it is, is, is the, the, the magnetic power that pulls people in. Uh, and and if, if you're not a follower of Jesus, it, it's the, the best moment of your life to hear this story. Are we convinced of that deeply as followers on mission? That if I tell somebody about Jesus and, and this, this doubter seeker, this atheist agnostic, this is the greatest moment in eternity for them. This is the sweetest moment of their life. As you get to tell them, your back was turned to God, but God came and swooped you up and, and he brought you close and he kissed your face. And all you have to do through faith is receive that grace. All you have to do is believe that in that moment, grace wants and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is more than enough to cover your sin and make you alive for eternity. What would keep us from sharing the gospel? Um, we in America are, are so scared that we're going to become the religious right or we're going to be judged for, for the things that Christians have done in, in the past. But I want to convince our folks that when you share the salvation gospel of Jesus with somebody, there just couldn't be a more profound, beautiful moment than that time where you see almost like the two thieves on the cross um, at the end of Jesus' life, where that one thief had only lived a miserable life, had never done anything good, and he asked Jesus, will you remember me today in your kingdom? And Jesus, just because of that moment of faith, just because of that very simple articulation of belief, Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. That's the profundity of our faith. It's just that simple. It's Jesus. And so our last stop this morning is this. Something transpires from Ephesians 1, robust theology, Ephesians 2, deep salvific understanding, or, or how rescue happens, into chapter 3, where it empowers us and presses on us. Uh, we follow a king, and we're citizens of that king. And as a citizen, you begin to reflect the kingdom. And more importantly, you begin to reflect the king. And so we're, we're not supposed to take this uh, unbelievable salvation that's been entrusted to us and keep it for ourselves. It can't stay within the confines of this room. Something else is supposed to happen in it and to it as heirs. It's supposed to be Ephesians 3.10. Uh, our last verse for this morning says this. So that through the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And so what's the manifold wisdom of God that Ephesians 3.10 is talking about? Well, everything in Ephesians up to this moment, all of the greatness of the lavish grace of God and, and all of the profundity of but God and, and that moment where the death of, of uh, our souls because of the trespasses of our sins is no longer indicative of who we are, but, but the, the resurrection of Jesus is, is now the things that we're supposed to do. And, and, and the church has been entrusted with this. The church is not a building. The church is not a gathering. Uh, the church is, is people. The, the Greek word is ekklesia, and it literally means called out from the world and gathered together. And so as we're gathered as a covenant family and, and as a body of believers, you're entrusted with the wisdom of God, and you're supposed to make it known from the highest heavens, and in Greek culture and in Hebrew culture, if you had authority at the highest place, you also therefore had authority of every place under that. And so in the highest chambers of the land, in, in, in the very throne room of the queen, we're supposed to make the gospel known. 
and, and then in, in brothels, in the darkest parts of our cities, and, and in, in places where we would never imagine that the gospel could take root. Um, th- that's always been the specialty of Jesus. It's always been the specialty of the gospel. In the darkest, least likely places, the gospel thrives. And then it begins to take over and bring light into the city in which we live in. And, and your role is to be those people. The most important thing that we could do, ending where we started, is to plant churches that deeply believe in the gospel, that bring us together as community and send us out into the city that we live in, making known the greatness of Jesus to our neighbors all the way to the ends of the earth. You're doing that, and the Lord is deeply proud of you. What a robust thing that Jesus has done for us. Let's pray together, okay? God, we we ask that uh, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 would become part of our lives, uh, whether we don't yet believe or we've been followers our whole life. Uh, For us who are here today that um, wouldn't say we follow Jesus, uh, Spirit, would you speak to to them? Would you uh, let them know it's the sweetest moment of their lives when they get to hear about Jesus and and believe? Would that change them? Would they believe today through faith by grace and let their whole eternity be changed? And God, as as followers of Christ, would you restore to us that sweet moment where the Father grabbed us from behind and restored us and and kissed our face and made us um, heirs uh, of the Beloved? And would you help us understand, Lord, that, that we've been sent out into the world. And, and the thing that we're taking is not religion or ethics or morality, but we're taking the profundity of the gospel, that Jesus loved us so much that he wouldn't let us be dead anymore, and he won us through his life, death, and resurrection. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen. Thank you, Tyler. Uh, something that we do regularly here is take time to remember Jesus' death by taking bread and wine together. The bread and wine represent a meal that Jesus shared with his disciples shortly before he died. The bread represents Jesus' broken body and the wine, the blood that he shed. And as we come to this table today, it's a visible reminder to us of the grace that God has lavished upon us in Jesus Christ, the, the pleasure that he has in calling his children his own. At that meal, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he said to his disciples, this is my body broken for you. Take, eat, and remember me. He also took wine and he said to them, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Drink and remember me. Jesus called all who loved and followed him to share in this meal. And so here at Grace Church Leith, we invite all those who love and follow Jesus and have been baptized to come and take the bread and wine. If you're not a Christian, we're delighted that you're here. And I just invite you to use this time to reflect on uh, what Tyler's just been saying from Ephesians, uh, that the offer is there today for you to receive Jesus, to, to know him and to experience the grace that God offers in Christ. Uh, it's not something that we can earn. It's not something that we, we, we achieve. It's something that's given. Uh, Jesus is a gift that we receive. And so can I encourage you to receive him as those around you receive the bread and wine. And the way we do this here, we're just going to stand and sing two songs. And any time during those two songs, please feel free to step out to either one of the tables at the back and take the bread and wine.
Well, as Arthur said, we're going to stand and sing. We're going to sing two songs. Uh, the first is O to See the Dawn, where we can reflect on the cross and uh, Christ's resurrection for us. And we're going to finish off by singing Psalm 100 after that. So let's stand together as we sing. Quakes as it's made. 